On today's episode of Startup Stories, I speak with Ryan Murphy of Sharp Sports. Ryan is the CEO and founder of Sharp Sports, who are a betting integration tool with sports betting. So they merged their APIs between different data providers and common household names like DraftKings or FanDuel and kind of very behind the scenes B2B type business. It was interesting hearing his background, how he went from working at Google and Stripe into going off on, on his own and jumping into the water. Fantastic time catching up with, with Murph and hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome back to the Startup Stories podcast. I am your host, Tom Callahan. Today, I am joined by Ryan Murphy, who is the founder and CEO of Sharp Sports. Ryan, what's going on? What's up, Tom? Happy to be here. Thanks yeah. for having me. Yeah, it's good to it's good to see that that nice shiny bald head again. I mean, I'll let I'll let mine out real quick. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, man, like sharp sports, um, something relatively new you've been working on. Can you and you move back to New York to kind of get it spearheaded? Um, what is yeah, what is sharp sports in you know in in a few sentences? Yeah, yeah. First of all, great barber work on your side. You know, I can appreciate that. <laughs> One man, one bald man to another. Um, I'm working on the beard next for sure. That's a good look. Um, yeah, so Shark Sports uh, started uh, a few years ago. It's actually uh, it came out of the pandemic. Um, we are building an API for uh, sports betting developers, essentially. So obviously, sports betting has become a big topic of conversation in the U.S. It's, it's been legalized in 2018. And with that comes a ton of developers looking to build applications for better helping them become better at betting, giving them entertainment around betting, um, just giving them content around betting. Um, there's a lot of really smart people looking to provide those services, uh, but they lack some of the tools that you see in other more mature industries like FinTech, where you have a plaid that's built an open betting ecosystem API. Um, mm -hmm. So we've basically done the same thing in sports betting. So now on top of our API, um, different developers can actually integrate directly to your sports betting account and provide you a personalized experience in their application based on that. Cool. Yeah. I love that. I love, um, for, yeah, for people that don't like APIs and integrations is like, that is, that is the huge thing going on in tech right now. And it makes, makes, th it makes things work, uh, you know, and, and keeping things all in yeah. one place. I, I love that. Um, and I guess, you know, how did this, how did sharp sports kind of come to be like, you know, sport, you know, sports betting wasn't, legal of just a few years ago um and then kind of you know what made you want to jump on this opportunity or is it something that's kind of been in talks for a while yeah i mean you know like anything else there's you know, a bunch of different factors that led to it i was always looking for something to do in the entrepreneurial space i knew i wanted to start something but i also knew that i wanted to be really convicted about whatever it was that i started so i was kind of looking for the right opportunity while working for a long time in software sales and the right opportunity came about when I started taking coding classes, actually, when I was at Stripe. I was selling Stripe, which is another API, selling to developers for the first time. So I wanted to learn the language a little bit, started taking Python classes. Um, and then I connected with a friend of mine from college who was uh, essentially uh, making a go of it as a professional sports better. Um, and he's building his own models to predict the outcomes of games. It was actually making a decent amount of money doing it, which was really cool. But he didn't have any like underlying tools or software to automate this process. So 
we'd be golfing and he'd have to, you know, pull out his 17 inch MacBook out of his bag on like the eighth hole and like run some commands on his machine. And I was like, you know, you could, we could probably automate a lot of this stuff and I've been taking these classes. So let, let me, let me try something. So started helping him automate some of his processes. Um, we're kind of, you know, kind of just working directly with him and making a little bit of money doing so just kind of on the side more for fun than anything else. And then, you know, COVID happened in 2020, uh, infamous Rudy Gobert game when he touched all the mics and then they canceled all the NBA games happened. And, you know, if you're a professional sports better, you need to have sports happening in order to make any money. So Sam was yeah. out of business, my co-founder. And I basically said, hey, we should take all the software that we've built and see if there's other applications for it. We could probably sell it to other people. And, you know, that's where the business came from. And uh, we incorporated July 2020, went full time August 2021. And, yeah, been at it ever since. Awesome. I love that. It's just kind of like turning a hobby and something that you're just you know, really interested in and just being like, oh shit, like this is, this is something I've worked, I've been working on for years. And all of a sudden it's just kind of like, cool, let's, let's launch this thing and let's make this public a little bit um, and shoot it out to cool. friends and family and get beta testing and stuff like that. And, and then, yeah, launching up is, is huge. Um, and what yeah. kind of, you know, for you, like taking that leap, you know, you've, you've had a great, you had a, you know, successful career, like, you know, working at Google, working at Stripe and then, why give why give that up for for sharp sports? Yeah, no, that's a great question and one that I sometimes ask myself <laughs> even now. But I think ultimately it's a good decision. But um, yeah, I don't know. I just always had the itch. I think you know I graduated from Columbia, obviously, with you, and was out in New York. And a lot of people are going down the finance path, right? And you know, I moved out to California to work at startups and and software. And, you know, part of me was just really, really interested in that world and the idea that, you know, you could in software really quickly come up with a concept, build it and scale it really fast. Um, you know, I come from a, a family of entrepreneurs. You know, my dad is an entrepreneur. His dad was as well. So it's always something I thought I might want to try. And after, you know, eight years uh, in San Francisco working in the tech industry, I, I thought that maybe I had enough of a experience to know what I would want to get into. And then, you know, kind of got lucky with the right place, right time with all those different events happening that led to starting this business. Um, it was a tough decision for sure. I mean, worked part time on the business for a year before finally taking the leap. Um, but I think it's just one of those things where something you want to do, there's no time like the present. Um, it was just going to get harder and harder to make that decision as I progressed in, you know, a more traditional yeah. career path. Um, and ultimately, I think after talking to like every, mentor that I could think of and anyone who would have an opinion. I, I think I just realized that at the end of the day, even if this is a if this is going to be an abject failure really quickly, I'd probably learn so much, you know, about myself and about business and about what I was good at and what I wasn't good at, that I'd be in a better place regardless, you know, mm -hmm. from a career perspective afterwards. Um so at the end of the day, you know, kind of chalked it up to uh, you know, can't lose opportunity. And uh, we've seen some success so far. So you know, I'm grateful for that. Um, definitely harder than a harder life. I'm in a you know, booth at a WeWork as opposed to being at Google or Stripe where we've got like full-time chefs and, you know, everything's free, full bar, like definitely miss some of those perks. But uh, I don't know, it's more rewarding, I would say, working on uh, this business for sure. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's it's your own. Like you have, you have huge amounts of equity in this and you're putting your, you know, not 
not just your professional life. It's like you're putting your lifestyle and everything on the line, uh, which is which is admirable. And yeah, I remember. Um, yeah, God, it had to be five or six years ago, and you were you were visiting the Google office in Venice, and we, I, you, we, I had lunch with you there, and you were like, I was like, dude, this is this is pretty cool. That was my first time, like, at, like doing that Google thing, and I'm like, I was like, this is pretty nice. You're like, yeah, man, this is this. Is, I don't know how I really give this up. Um, <laughs> like, this is this is sweet, <laughs> and I'm like, you know, I was like, I was like, I remember that that like that what that like quote just lives so vividly and it's like yeah that's so true for so many people like in the big tech world like you know you kind of get these cushy jobs and all these great perks and everything and it's it's tough it's like you know how do you go and start something off on your own but like you said like hey if you you know you have a great background if you fail at this you'll have learned so much more in these past few years and then can take that in and like use it as leverage into you know another company um and I know and this wasn't your yeah. first first bite with or dance with entrepreneurship. Did you have uh were you selling Murph's mugs? Um were you doing Moscow Mule mugs for a bit? Murph's mugs, yeah, yeah. I did like a drop shipping operation on Amazon back in the day, which is you know, uh, which is a fun project. But yeah, I basically talked to this guy, I met at like a party or something, and he's like, Yeah, man, you can just basically run this, you know, this protocol where you look up the most uh, attractive products on Amazon that fit these certain criteria and you can go find a provider in China and then just ship them directly to the Amazon warehouse and then sell them on the Amazon page and make money doing it. And I thought that was awesome. So yeah, selling Moscow mule mugs for a couple of years there. Yeah. Good, good memory. <laughs> yeah. I think that just like, so like that, you know, that entrepreneurship is, yeah, like you said, it's, like, it's in your blood. Um, and you know, it's like, you, you're, it sounds like you got a pretty supportive family that would be able to, you know, it's like, it's behind you. It's just like, Hey, like you should go do this. Like it's now, you know, you're, you're young, you can afford yeah. to fail um, and take, take the risk. And it's, you know, it'll, it'll all be worth it. You know, whether, you know, hugely successful, successful, or, you know, you fall flat on your face and you'd be like, wow, yeah, you know, I just took away this huge chunk of knowledge, um, you know, and yeah, you kind of spin that. Um, and totally. Yeah. I was going to say the most thing was interesting because like, you know, I hadn't thought about that in a long time and it was something kind of silly that I was never going to like make real money doing or be able to support myself on, but was kind of like testing the waters a little bit. And I just remember yeah you know, feeling so proud of making like $500 in a month, you know, profit from the mugs and the spending so much time obsessing over the page and everything like that. And I think that definitely told me at the time that it's something I, I would want to do in a bigger way. Um, but yeah, I think it was helpful to just kind of test the waters and, you know, see if that's even something that would be interesting for me, which is, you know, definitely was. Yeah. And like figuring out like, you know, how to, how to grow, how to grow your business, how to, how to get people to buy more mugs. And, you know, with, with Sharp Sports, like how have you seen the, you know, how, how have you seen like revenue grow or like, what is like the business model that has been able to, you've seen like, Hey, this works, this, this doesn't work. And let's, you know, as, as was there a lot of AB testing going on throughout this, or was it kind of like, Hey, we decided this was going to be it. And we did the research prior to it and it's, it's worked out well or, you know, vice versa. Yeah, it was kind of the latter, luckily enough. I think, you know, we talked to a lot of people when we started the business and almost everyone told us, you know, you're going to have to pivot. You know, your first idea will almost never work out. I think we got kind of lucky in that the concept that we came up with originally is the concept two years later that we're still with that we're growing revenue based on. Um, so I think part of that is luck 
and you know you can never really know how well a product's going to do until you actually build it and launch it. But the mm-hmm. part of it is we did spend a lot of time validating with potential customers, you know, what do you want? Would you find this valuable? Would you pay for this? Um, and that seemed to work out relatively well. I mean, now we're in a position where we're, we're looking to build additional products on top of our initial product and trying to go through the same process. And, you know, we are seeing that we were relatively lucky and, you know, kind of hitting the nail on the head with the first product because we've had a couple of things that haven't been as successful as we hoped or thought. Um, but, you know, kind of learned something with each of them. Um, but yeah, no, we did, we did get lucky in that. Yeah. Our initial deck, uh, is still pretty much the same deck that we use now because the, the product probably doesn't change too much. Yeah. That's huge. You know, for being, being live for almost two years now, um, and just kind of being able to stick with that original idea is, is rare, um, with a lot of, you know, startups and companies in general. Um, so, and, you know, I, I know you mentioned some of like the, the like things like the downfalls or the hard stuff, like what, what have been some things that you've been like, holy shit, like this is a whole nother beast. And you're like, you try, you try to do it, you fail, you try to do it again, you fail. And just kind of what has been like one of the more frustrating parts of kind of, you know, having to make something like of your, of your own. Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think the biggest thing that I probably underestimated was just the, you know, the fact that we started the business with just uh, my co-founder, Sam, and I, just, you know, in a room, whiteboarding stuff, coming up with ideas. And, you know, we had a really good shorthand, known each other for 15 years at this point. And, you know, we're kind of uh, sharing a brain in a lot of ways, had similar perspectives. But then the team grows and, you know, you kind of have to get everyone to buy into the same vision. And not everyone, you know, uh, buys into the same perspective. So uh, getting everyone on the same page. Uh, I found to be, you know, challenging at the beginning. I kind of thought, oh yeah, this is what we're building. Just tell everyone what we're building and then, you know, they'll help us build it. In reality, you know, everyone has a different reason for wanting to be involved. You kind of have to cater the the message to them individually and um, kind of continually reinforce that. So that's just an ongoing process where like I'm kind of the, you know, I run product management, you could say, where, you know, coming up with concepts and then, uh, you know, translating them into uh, scopes and, you know, projects that, developers can handle and um, communicating that to them is a kind of ongoing process that um, just takes a lot of time and effort, rightly so. They're spending a ton of time building it. They, they should know why they're building it, what the value is, but um, it's just not something I'd really uh, put much stock into when we first started. So that's definitely been difficult um, in terms of like operationally. Uh, I would say the other thing is just that talk about starting a business is just like, you know, besides revenue, which of course is a good success metric, you never really know if you're making the right decisions. You know, if there's no one above you, you know, giving a thumbs up or thumbs down, but you can share some of the blame with if it doesn't go right. So mm-hmm. there's just a lot of uncertainty as well. And you're, you know, trying to get everyone to buy into this vision. And you're like saying how confident you are in it, but in the back of your head, you're kind of like, eh, I hope this works, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's that, it's just like, yeah, speak confidently about something. And you just like hope you pray for the best. It's like you, you can only control so much. And it's like, yeah, at the end of the day, this is uncharted territory a bit. Um, and I'm sure there's like new rules and regulations and stuff that you got to constantly keep up with, within the, within the, you know, sports betting industry. Um, and yeah, I think, like you said, like you and Sam are on board of like, Hey, this is what we're doing and why, 
But how do you get 10 other people to think that same way? And that's, I think, you know, when people talk about growing pains, it's like, that's growing pains right there within a startup. And it's hard, like, it's hard to go from two to five and then going from five to 10 is even harder to like get that. Um, Everyone, yeah, just everyone on board, um, which is a skill set that is learned over time, I think for sure. Um, And is never perfected. Like everyone's always going to be, like you said, they have their own, have their own interests in mind or their own ideas and thoughts. And it's like, how do you, you know, create this open, you know, open communicative environment with a little bit of democracy while also being like, hey, at the end of the day, like Sam and I make the decisions, um, but taking other people's inputs there. Um, have you found like, you know, through through like employee growth, like I know you guys have a, a few, looks like you have a few people on board. How has, how has that like hiring process been? Like what made, what got you to the point of like, hey, it can't just be the two of us anymore. We need, we need extra, extra bandwidth and whether it's full-time employees or, you know, outsourced contractors, things like that. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was clear pretty much immediately that we needed a lot of help for <laughs> sure, especially on the development side of things, you know, um, uh, it's just a tough product that we're trying to build. There's a lot of moving parts and uh, neither one of us had ever built a, you know, production ready, um, you know, software product before but it's funny we you know started building it and then we talked to like our first investor and we basically said like hey we just started building this thing we should have you know a production ready like mvp version of it in about two and then i think it was like nine months later that we actually had something that (laughs) that we could actually have someone integrate um so we kind of learned along the way that there are a lot of things we didn't know we didn't know and Mm -hmm. we sought out people who had done something similar before and you know we got lucky we had a couple of classmates that we had stayed in touch with who, who just happened to have areas of expertise that were really helpful and brought them on board um, to help scale and then um, after that we had a lot of success with finding people with specific areas of expertise through our network bringing them on as contractors and if we all liked working together then hiring them full-time um, yeah. so that's how we've done most of our hiring we've hired a couple people just like full-time straight away um, but for the most part, you know, we kind of, I think it makes sense for both us and people that we're hiring because we're an early stage startup. They want to know what they're getting into also. Um, totally. So, you know, doing a little bit of a, you know, courting period where we're both just like, oh, you know, before we move in, let's like date for a few months, you know, and then uh, figure this thing out. So, yeah, I see the combination of like that strategy and then just like, you know, mining our network as much as possible and just asking everyone like, hey, you know someone who knows anything about React Native and then it's like finding that person who then ends up being like a full-time contributor years later. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, it's it's uh, the networking is, is huge, I think, for for any founder. It's just like always being on the lookout for talent and what's out there and understanding, you know, what, what that costs and how that can benefit you. And like, hey, you know, does, yeah, this person costs a lot of money to have on our team, but they'll generate X, you know, 7x in revenue from the work that they're out from the work that they're outputting and be like yeah that's a good business decision right there if that person's going to make you know you know this function is going to make this much more money um and like regarding like you know money and finances and those decisions like have you guys been you know pretty like bootstrapped or did you go out for you know early stage in investing or you know what is that whole process or decision making process along you know there's pros and cons to both obviously but um just want to hear you know what your process or thoughts are on any of that yeah uh we wrestled with that a bit and you know we were like do we want to bootstrap this thing or do we want to raise funding at the end of the day 
we needed to hire and the product was going to be uh, a pretty large lift to build. So we, we decided to raise some funding. Mm-hmm. Um, the big difficult decision was that, you know, for the most part, trying to raise uh, venture capital, it helps a lot if the, whole, if the team is full time, fully dedicated to it. It's kind of tough for me to go out and pitch, you know, raise a bunch of money for this venture if I'm like, I'm not even fully in on it. Right. So, um, I, you know, left my job at Stripe and then just started fundraising full time um, and, you know, got some, some money in the door. Uh, luckily, um, with a lot of help from a, from a lot of people. Um, but yeah, honestly, just the dynamics of our business so that we had to build a ton of stuff and realize we were going to need some help doing it if we wanted to get it live within, you know, a reasonable period of time. And it would have taken us, you know, a couple of years to just build the product if we, you know, didn't have any, uh, uh, financing coming in. Um, you know, we have a lo- pretty long sales cycle where like infrastructure selling to developers. So like, you know, it probably takes a couple of months, like two, three months on average just to get buy-in from the team. You get the contract signed and the pricing agreed to and everything. And then the actual implementation has to start, which, you know, depending on the use case can take anywhere from like a couple of weeks to like several months. Yeah. So, uh, it's tough. You know, we kind of need some upfront capital to fund ourselves while we kind of wait for some of that revenue to come in. Um, and now we've got a pretty good pipeline and we've got a lot of customers. So we do, uh, you know, we do a decent amount of revenue. Um, but yeah, we just couldn't do without that initial upstart capital to make things a little bit easier for sure. Yeah. And was that, you know, going out, you know, I know it called like a, you go on like a road show, um, you know, going to pitch, pitch different VCs, things like that. Was it, did you kind of just, you know, fall in love with, was it just like love at first sight both ways? Or did you have to go out and, you know, grind it out for a few months and talk to, you know, tens, dozens, like hundreds of different people? Like what was the, you know, fundraising process like for for you at least? I know this was kind of, I imagine it was probably either late 2020 or early, you know, 2021 when funding was booming. Um, so was it, you know, did you kind of get in at the right time or you know, a little bit of luck, a little bit of uh, skill, everything like that. Like, what was the the actual fundraising process like? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't exactly love at first sight. You know, probably I probably talked to like I don't know seventy five different investors and ended up raising money from five of them. Yeah. Um, and it, it was during like a, a booming time, right? And I think that that definitely helped. Um, but it was also during a time where sports betting was still it was like pretty brand new. Most Traditional VC firms weren't really touching it, you know, in a, in a meaningful way, at least at the super early stage. Um, and there just wasn't a lot of knowledge in the space about it. So we kind of, uh, limited ourselves to just people who had done sports betting deals in the past, which was like a smaller group. And mm-hmm. then of that group, only so many are interested in B2B, like infrastructure type deals. So we narrowed it down a little bit more from there. And then, uh, of that group, you know, maybe, you know, that was maybe like 10 investors who do super early stage sports betting, B2B type investing. And then, you know, we ended up working with like half of them, uh, which was great because in that small world, it's great when you get the, the guys who are focused on that and who can actually be helpful. Um, but narrowing that down and learning those lessons was like, took a long time. I think we started and we were like, got some really good connections and talked to some people at large VC firms out in San Francisco and, we're like, oh yeah, I'm sure one of these guys will just write us a, a big check. You know, our idea makes sense. We're smart guys. Um, but there's so many other factors and we have to kind of learn over time that we need a little bit more of a niche investor. And yeah, uh, yeah I mean, we just honestly, we lucked out 
uh, got connected with someone who really just helped us out of like the goodness of their heart and connected us with like all of their contacts and made nice. all those introductions, which definitely helped cut down on the time as well. Yeah. Well, that's not all luck. That's a little bit of skill. You know, you, you and Sam are some, you know, smooth talking guys uh, and, you know, make, <laughs> make good impressions on people where people want to, people want, I think, you know, what I've learned so much is like people want to help people out um, regardless. It's like, Hey, if there's something, you know, if there's something that I can do for you and it's like, yeah, that's, that's perfect. And then with, with that, it's just like, without the expectation that like, the favor is going to be returned. It's like, no, like, let's just, let's do this. This is cool. I, I I like it. I'll introduce you to someone. It takes me all of 30 seconds to make, to make that introduction, but it can change your life. You know, that's, that's kind of like how I've thought about just professional networking in general is like, take the time to chat with someone and and do what you can. And if you can't do anything, like let them like, don't drag people along. Uh, Be like, Hey, like I, I love what you're doing. I can't really figure out where I'd be able to help right now, but I don't want to, you know, waste your time or something like that. I think it was uh, cool. And, and then, um, you know, since then with, with like growing revenue and, you know, with, you know, how, I guess like, how do people, how, how does sharp sports fit in? Like if people, if you were describing it and people are like, Oh yeah, it's something like DraftKings or FanDuel. It's like, well, not really, but like, how would you, how would you kind of describe yourself, I guess, to a, you know, to a, a seventh grader of just like, hey, here's here's the difference between us and them and, and kind of why you would why this is a completely different area. Yeah, no, it's a good question. I always think about it as like, yeah, describing to you know seven year old or to like your parents or something like that. Like your yeah. parents don't understand it and feel that at least in fact that uh, helpful uh perspective, you know, there's a few moving parts for us and like because we're so like back in infrastructure. Um, there, you know, there's an, one catch all like 10 second kind of a descriptor that everyone gets, but one useful one I, I find is that, you know, most people have like Venmo or Cash App or something like that, right? In order for that to work, you have to connect your bank account to those different services. And it kind of just happens magically, right? You know, if it says you want to connect your Chase account, you put in your credentials for Chase and then boom, now your, your bank account connected to your Venmo account. Well, there's mm-hmm. a, a product called Plaid, you know, which does that service for Venmo and for thousands of other fintech apps like Mint and Intuit for all these different applications. Um, and, you know, they're like a $15 billion company, right? That yeah. most people haven't really heard of, but almost everyone uses. And we do something similar in the sports betting space where, you know, you, Tom, have a, a sports betting account and FanDuel and DraftKings, and you find a service that can... Uh, It'll give you some performance insights and tell you where you're making some mistakes in your sports betting. If you want to connect your FanDuel and DraftKings account with them, then you know we pro- provide that connection. So you can enter okay. your credentials and then get get those different services. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where we live. There's a ton of different use cases that people use um, our product for. You know, everything from like social to mm-hmm. uh, more analytics uh, to you know personalized content. There's a lot of different stuff that that product can be used for but ultimately we're valuable because the sports books kind of have like a casino mentality where you know you walk into a casino it's very clear they don't want you to know what time of day it is there's no clocks there's no windows they're pumping oxygen in sports books kind of think the same way where they're like we don't really want to show you how much money you, you might be winning or more likely losing yeah. uh so you know we provide kind of access to those insights um that people want but aren't getting from the sports book well and in what states are you guys like 
what you know obviously only you know certain states are have legalized gambling like has that been do different states have different you know regulations that you need to adhere to like so you know you're custom almost have to like customize the product for you know illinois versus new jersey or things like that has you know what is that what has that been like because california i'm like sports betting is not legal here and you know it's like i i uh during like the nfl games i was out in tennessee and i'm like i'm in the super bowl and i'm like oh my god like you, you know you can you can bet on your phone i'm like I haven't touched betting since, you know, college. Uh, and, and then being able to just look at like, I'm like, Oh my God, I can bet on what the next play is going to be a, a pass or a run. And I was like, wow, you can make some serious money or you could lose some serious money. Um, but sidetracking, like I'm, I'm a little unfamiliar with it because I don't get to interface with these in California every day, but how, you know, what are those, you know, working with different States? Like, is it a pain in the ass? Is it pretty easy? Yeah, I mean, it kind of runs the gambit. Like our, you know, we have to worry a lot about privacy uh, stuff, right? Because we're we're processing people's data, and we have to encrypt everything, and we have to follow all the privacy regulations, which do differ state by state. Yeah. Um, but we just try to design everything at kind of the highest threshold of privacy regulations, so we don't have to worry about state by state. But then we do have to build unique integrations for DraftKings in Illinois versus DraftKings in Tennessee, right? They have different laws that. You know, so DraftKings might have different infrastructure in one versus the other. So we do have to technically, you know, uh, build our product in a way that that difference is abstracted from our end customer, so that it all looks the same to them essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is uh, it's interesting that it's so kind of state specific. Yeah, it is growing. Um, I think there's like 35 states or something like that that have legal uh, online sports betting and. Uh, you know, we kind of feel like uh, those people should have access to some kind of transparency on their account so they you know, make the mistake of, uh, of losing too much money, which I think, you know, hopefully becomes a, a focus of uh, the regulatory landscape that states, you know, makes things like this a requirement. So that sports books can't get away with kind of hiding your, you know, your performance uh, history. Um, but it is interesting also just for us to look at the behavior in different states and see, you know, in Tennessee, they're betting so much more on college basketball whereas like you know in illinois there's more nba fans and you know there's some interesting differences state by state uh, on that level as well yeah i think that makes i think that makes sense like having that data and understanding it and being like hey you know these there's a lot of professional sports gambling probably in like new york city where there's probably where there's you know so many there's what seven eight different professional sports teams you know in the, in the big four and then you know you go down to louisiana it's like they're probably betting college football because that's all there is. Um, you know, it, yeah. it's kind of understanding those. And, you know, for the industry as a whole, obviously, you know, with it being relatively new, like I always I'm trying to like I, I try to in my mind, I just compare it to like the the like recreational marijuana industry. It's like, hey, this is something that didn't exist and was like bad, bad, bad for so long. And then, you know, obviously, you know, entrepreneurs that kind of push the bar and and try and like get this to be the norm and and not have this stigma around like oh you gamble on sports like you're a bad person it's like no this is like you know this is a serious it's a form of entertainment it's a form you know you can make money if you're you know if you're really good at it uh, but then also gambling responsibly it's like um where do you see like the industry continuing to grow like is it still sort of like in its infancy of legalization or are you are you seeing like you know it's kind of in the adolescent stage and because i feel like you know, marijuana has, you know, it's 
I don't know if it'll ever federally be legal or if the federal government even wants that. Cause at the end of the day, it's like, how much money can these states make off off of this product? And so, you know, it's kind of like supply and demand. Like, do enough people smoke smoke pot to 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 make it legal? And can we make millions and millions of dollars off this through taxes? Um, yeah, so, totally. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think sports betting probably a little bit earlier stage, maybe the like you know the preteen years, you know, trying to like figure out what's going on. But there's enough states that have done it. There's enough of a blueprint. There's enough of like revenue proven in all these different markets and the way that it's grown in each market that's legalized it, it's clear that it's not a situation where people were waiting for it to be legal in order to make it a part of their life, lives, right? Similar to marijuana, yeah. like just because it's illegal doesn't mean people weren't doing it. But as soon as it's legal, you see, oh, I won't immediately, you know, you see how big the market is overnight. Um, there aren't that many people who are waiting around for it to become legalized. Everyone has like a guy or like a bookie or they bet on a offshore website or something like that. They bet with their buddies and now they can just do it in a more, you know, regulated fashion, which I think ultimately it's probably um, a good thing because yeah. now you can put in place regulations to help with any kind of gambling problems that people might have. And you can help people out with resources. And uh, yeah, and in the States, you know, they can't, you know, really turn away from the revenue, especially coming off out of COVID. A lot of states turned on that spigot really quickly because they could make a ton of money uh, yeah. really fast. Um, so we're all waiting for like, you know, basically California, Texas, and Florida. So we got the big three that have yet to fall. Um, there are some kind of like daily fantasy type products that are legal in those places that mm-hmm. are basically sports betting. So that kind of provides an initial signal. Um, but I think in the next five years, I think we'll probably see Texas and Florida for sure. TBD uh, on California, but um, we'll probably get there eventually. And then, yeah, to your question about federal regulation, like I have no idea who knows if they'll ever do that. But uh, it is a little bit silly if you know we end up with like most of the states with marijuana and sports betting legal, but uh, there's no federal law essentially. You know? Yeah. So, but we'll see. No, that's interesting. Yeah, I think, you know, like you just said, like people are going to find a way to to bet on sports, um, whether legal or illegal. Um, it's like, hey, you know, let's if there's some guidelines and some rules around it, it hopefully keeps people safer and from losing amounts of money that they that they can't afford to lose. And hopefully, you know, with a product like yours, it can link them to data that's saying like, hey, quit betting on this, you dumbass. Like you're losing every everything that you, you do, like doing this. It's like, here's here's like some here's here's the facts here like where you can maybe maybe yeah. make make a turnaround here um that's cool 100 percent. yeah no I mean, there's a lot of stuff you know i think people are concerned with, with betting in general of there being like fixed games and stuff like that is obviously a history of that with like tim donahy and the nba and yeah. now because it's all legalized all of the sports books are required to you know report all of betting behavior and activity they're required to get social security numbers from everyone who's betting. So mm-hmm. we've already seen, you know, multiple players in professional leagues get, you know, banned or get caught or suspended for betting yeah. on games they're not supposed to. Um, so, you know, you know, say what you will about whether they should be able to or not able to, but, you know, it, it kind of does improve things if it's uh, brought into the light as opposed to just being like in the shadows. Right. Yeah. And do, do you feel like maybe like, with the legalization of sport of online sports gambling, like, do you think it has like helped other maybe smaller sports 
um, kind of come to come to the public eye a little more and being like, hey, like I can bet on this and I want to I want to watch the game that I'm betting on. Where do I where do I watch that now? Uh, do you think that I, I don't I don't know anything, but I'm just kind of putting two and two together. I imagine like, um, you know, different sports if you can bet on it, you want to watch it and you don't know how to watch, you know, cricket in the United States or like, where do I watch major league, major league lacrosse? Like that's not a channel that I subscribe to, or is that on ESPN or um, have you, you know, do you see that? Is that something that you guys kind of take into account with anything? Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting to look at which, which sports are most popular to be bet on and all of the, the newer leagues, like the XFL and like the, uh, the PLL, the lacrosse league, they really want to become uh, heavily bet on leagues, right? Because they know that that's what draws interest. So they are all doing deals with the sports books. And in some cases, I think the, the sports books will end up uh, distributing, you know, the feeds for some of these games. Like you can actually stream, you know, yeah. this game on DraftKings. And um, I think we'll definitely see some overlap there. I think, you know, ultimately, I think betting more follows popularity of a sport as opposed mm-hmm. to like, popularity of the sport being driven by betting. Like, you know, you see things like the F1 Netflix doc making F1 yeah. like popular overnight in the US. I think that stuff probably drives uh the popularity of the sport, which then drives betting as opposed to the other way around. But um people are definitely trying to get more uh betting activity going on their their respective league. Yeah. And do you see like, do you see different like slowdowns? Um like, you know, in terms of user user activity, like throughout the year, like, you know, we're, we're in the, this summer season, kind of like this dry season of sports where there's like professional MLB is like the only thing, but, you know, until like September when professional and college football starts. And then, you know, in the fall when NBA and NHL starts, um, like, is there like influxes of business? I'm sure, you know, so many businesses go, you know, you have peaks and valleys, you have slow months, you have fast months, so you can barely keep up. Is it the same? Like, with that, like with, I guess, just in terms of pure like usage or like revenue or even just revenue that you bring in. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy how seasonal it is. And it's like basically August football season starts and betting behavior like ramps up basically through the NBA finals. And then mm-hmm. it's like crickets until football season starts again. You know, it's like a third yeah. of the behavior uh, over the summer where you basically only have like, some golf events, some tennis events, and, and baseball. So, you know, football is king in the U.S. Uh, and, you know, March Madness is huge. NBA is huge. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's super, super seasonal. Yeah. So probably like a good time where, you know, you as a product can kind of ramp up some things that you've been meaning to do, but have just been so busy throughout, you know, throughout all these other seasons. It's like you get caught up running the business where you can't really improve some of the things that you've been getting user feedback on because it'll, you know, it'll shut you down for a few hours or a day or something like that to to renovate everything. Is that, do you guys kind of take that approach at all? Just be like, Hey, it's, it's summer. It's a little slower let's let's really grind and focus here and kind of get back to basics or fix something that's been bothering us um yeah exactly yeah we try try to use this period to like pay down tech debt you know and, yeah and like build all the the testing that we haven't gotten a chance to or fix those pesky bugs that have been sticking around for forever like we do all that stuff in the summer and you know it's a little bit less of an intense time and you know it's funny because you think also that you know because it takes a while to implement our services that all of our customers would be, you know, doing the same thing and trying to get these features in before football season starts. But you know, everyone procrastinates 
and then everyone like once football season starts is when everyone starts clamoring for these new features and these new things so like yeah really for new customer acquisition like october november are our busiest months because that's you know around the time people actually get around to implementing this stuff um but yeah it's, it's actually nice to have a little bit of like a seasonality you know i always was envious of like teachers who get the summer off you know we don't quite get the summer off but it's nice to have a little bit of a you know a little bit of downtime yeah uh, during parts of the year it's very european you know but <laughs> yeah you're not taking all of august off or anything uh like france but um yeah you get to you know that's part of you know why you go off and start something on your own is to be able to have you know some sort of flexibility in you know what you do and hopefully it's like yeah, you're going to have some probably 15, 20 plus hour days where you just like had to grind away. But then hopefully that pays off into something where, you know, hey, you don't, you know, you can delegate enough where you don't have to worry about this all the time. You can focus on bigger picture or moving the product into new spaces that takes, you know, a little more like, yeah, those longer sales cycles, longer implementation times and just kind of sit back, put that creative thinking hat back on. Um, it allows allows some of that. So um yeah. Awesome, man. Well, other than, uh, you know, gambling responsibly and betting responsibly, um, <laughs> anything, anything you want to, you want to plug, you know, shout out, where can people find, you know, Ryan Murphy and Sharp Sports? Yeah. I mean, listen, we're, we're B2B uh, infrastructure tool. So LinkedIn is our, <laughs> our channel of choice. We're not the cool kids on, uh, on Twitter, definitely not TikTok. So yeah, definitely give us a follow on, on LinkedIn. We're posting updates there all the time. And, you know, feel free to reach out if uh, you're interested in what we're working on. We're always looking for, for good people to work uh, to work with. So, um, yeah, drop me a line. Cool. I love it. Um, awesome, Ryan. Well, I appreciate you having, having you on the podcast. And uh, hope everyone enjoyed this week's episode.